Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another installment of That to Which We Are Tethered, a look at new directions and developments in Christianity. Now, this particular episode is pretty much a little brother to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, number 205. On that one, I read a big, long essay called Liberated by Scissors about the progressive Christians of today versus the progressive Christians of the early 20th century. And so on this episode, my guest, Travis McCool, will respond to some of the points that I made and give his own views. Now, Mr. McCool has just started his own podcast called Table Gathering, of which I'll include a link in the show notes, and I highly recommend you give that a listen. So if y'all are ready, I'll let Travis begin by him giving his initial thoughts about the essay. One of the most intriguing things to me, I've never studied Karl Marx or Friedrich Nietzsche or I mean I've a little bit of Darwin here and there but just for specific purposes my time has been with theology far more than it's been with philosophy proper because you're quoting from naturalists and philosophers and I just I don't have a lot of experience but as I read them one of the most impactful parts for me was making the instant connection to some of the theological strains that I've thought about and, and, and whatever. It's interesting to me that the mindset of the progressives in the early 1900s and their idea about sort of a, a post-millennial, like basically they're post-millennialists. They're saying that the kingdom has already come and that the world is getting or, or could get hypothetically uh, better as it progresses forward. And so the coming of the kingdom of Christ is that humanity is to, in a sense, take the responsibility, grab the reins, and make the world into what God has prescribed it to be. And it's only through humanity adopting those fundamental principles and making the world into that, that we will ever see the world being what Christ wanted it to be. So that's that post- sort of post-millennial viewpoint. Yeah, uh, that was brilliant. In fact, I think in your text you had mentioned Calvinism. Like it's almost like the Hegelianism is almost a form of Calvinism. I never thought of it that way, but I think you're right. It's like, or maybe a fatalism of sorts. Yeah, no, the only difference is, is who's in charge, right? So like the Calvinist, or if you want to use Catholic terms, you know, an Augustinian uh, mindset would be that God is controlling every aspect of all of human history and that it's all unfolding according to his will and his plan. Uh, and so whatever happens, uh, it is, it is holy God. So this is almost the, the, the flip side of that in that on one hand, they're saying that humanity has to take the reins and be fully in control. And maybe you can give me some context as to where this comes from, but it says you quoted out of social Christianity and personal religion from 1912. It says, all history becomes the unfolding per- of the purpose of the imminent God who is working in the race toward the commonwealth of spiritual liberty and righteousness. History is the sacred workshop of God. And that immediately struck me as here this is coming from someone who 
believes that humanity is supposed to be kind of grabbing the reins and bringing about the kingdom of God on earth through governmental kind of force and so forth. And yet it sounds a hundred percent like Calvinism. They're saying that this is the workshop of God. And in a sense, we are his tools. Their viewpoint is we are his tools uh, where a Calvinist would just say, well, we're only his tools in as much as God dictates every aspect and we are the automaton robots that simply do what God has already decreed. And what they're saying is what God has decreed, it is up to our obedience to bring forth, but it's still God that that is the initiator. But it's just weird. It's, it, it's weird to read it like that because it smacks so much of fatalism or, or Calvinism. Here's a small task for you. Tell us why you think Calvinism ultimately is not true or not scriptural, scripturally correct, especially that what you were just talking about, the fatalism and the fact that we have no free will, that everything's predestined, everything's been decided beforehand. Because obviously Calvinists quote a lot of scripture to back up that belief, and I think they're sincere. Oh yeah, absolutely. They believe it because they're very committed to the idea of God being in control. So God's sovereignty is something to be preserved at all cost in the mind of the Calvinist, in the mind of not just the Calvinist, but, but I would say for the, for most of church history, that is the dominant view, right? That, that they would say that God is in control over all things. And, um, and it's weird because even somebody who believes in free will would ultimately admit the same thing. We would say that God can and does do whatever he wants to. Um, and so like we would all, all of us, uh, both someone who uh, subscribes to free will and someone who is a, uh, you know, a Calvinist or Augustinian, um, kind of believer there, we're all going to say that nothing exists without the hand of God. So we we all agree on that. We all say that all it all comes from God. It's all ultimately going to be redeemed by God. So we all agree that. The problem is when it comes to the the issue of evil, and that this is not. An, I mean, I'm I'm just rehashing what people have argued over for uh, hundreds and now thousands of years. Like this discussion about. Where is the responsibility of evil and how do we account for the sin of man? You know, how do we account for God saying, hey, don't do this or don't do that? Um, if you're a Calvinist, then you it, the inescapable truth at the end of the day is that there is no prescription from God. God's not prescribing you to not sin because if you sin, it was always preordained that you were going to sin. That's the inescapable truth of Calvinism. If you if you get injured in a car accident, you were always going to get injured in a car accident from Calvinism because all of human history has been preordained. So um, it's a strange thing to say uh, from a free will perspective because the Calvinists will say, um, you know, pray, you know, we pray God, uh, you know, protect our family as we go on this road trip or, or whatever. And the weird thing with, with free will is, um, if, if there is, if there's no question mark about what tomorrow holds in the mind of God, and, and we hold that God is the ultimate reality, like why, why would we pray about anything? Cause, cause if God knows for sure tomorrow that we're going to get into a car accident, for example, um, why would we pray about God protecting us in a 
to not get in a car accident. If he already knows that it's going to happen, that that's just a done deal. Why do we do anything? Cause maybe you can answer this because I don't know what Calvin is say, but why do we even bother talking about this? If everything's preordained and, and we're just following a, a template or a, a program that we're not even aware of, why are we bothering to call out evil or, or try to better ourselves or or anything? Why are we even talking about this right now if it's all preordained? You really probably find that if you sat down with the Calvinist and asked them, well, what's the point of evangelism, for example, in the church? If you believe that God has chosen who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved before the foundations of the world, uh, Ephesians 1, if we were all chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world, and thus those who were not chosen uh, were sort of left out of that equation, you're either saved or not. Like God's going to do what God's going to do, and it's not going to matter whether you say something or don't say something. And so there really is zero point in sharing this good news with anybody because either they're going to they're going to be where God wants them to be eternally or not. If it comes back to your essay and you're looking at the idea of uh, what humanity does that is horrific, like killing the unborn or like uh, the Holocaust or when you talk about eugenics and weeding out, uh, quote unquote, you know, the, the, the bad or mutant genes from the gene pool. Well, if you believe that God controls all human history and he's all everything that happens has been pre-planned since before the foundation of the universe, then literally God preordained every single thing that happens. You can't divorce the human action away from the God that preordained it. So the, the thing that a Calvinist will say is we have to trust in the Lord's goodness. We have to trust in his sovereignty. We have to trust that somehow even in this melee or this, this, hum, this brokenness, that there's something that God, that's something redeemable that God has factored out in advance and so even if this is horrific it's still somehow for the be- for God's glory and for the, the the good of mankind and that's where the free will guy scratches his head and goes man i don't know that in my mind that sort of turns god into this monster it makes god a eugenesis it's really maddening and it reminds me a lot of what brendan manning said and i don't know if he said this necessarily about calvinists but he just talked about people who had projected onto God human qualities such as no sense of justice, cruelty, conditional love. You know, it makes God unlovable. So one thing I wanted to get your input on, how do we live in the world and not become of the world to the point where I, I feel like the progressives have completely transformed themselves to the world. And I, and I think, again, I, I do recognize sincerity, where I think that they're trying to reach people that the church has probably given up on or just don't have the energy to try to you know, minister to. How do you navigate that in your own life, or what's your thoughts on that? Man... When I was entering at a little church in Mount Vernon, uh, for the first time ever, I had this, the pastor there, he, he kind of was helping me to sort of identify my own characteristics and what makes me tick as a human being and as a minister and all those, all those sort of qualities to self-identify uh, and to know what my own proclivities are all about. And he said, you're a, um, an evangelist. 
And in my mind, when and I thought about evangelism, I think Billy Graham or some TV evangelist or the guy on the street corner with the sandwich board uh, screaming about end of the world or whatever. You know, so I didn't identify with the the term, some, somebody calling me an evangelist. I just didn't think about things like that. But the more that I studied scripture, the more that I, uh, you know, I did that, I realized that when you read Paul and Paul talks about the way that his heart, like in Romans nine, he says that his heart, like he has unceasing anguish in his heart for the, before his people, that they would come to know Christ. Right. And that if he could, he makes this weird statement. He's like, if I, if it were possible, I would be cut off. Like I would cut myself off from Christ. I would end my relationship with Jesus uh, in order that my brothers and sisters might, you know, come to know him. And I always thought that's a weird, that's a weird thing to say. Cause I, you know, I think my primary, my primary goal in life is to be with Christ for eternity. And Paul here is saying that if he could, he would give up his relationship with Christ for eternity and that people might come to know, uh, to know God. And that's, a, that's a weird statement. Well, don't you think it's kind of like the, the, we think of the ultimate sacrifice of, you know, laying down your life for another but he's almost like giving up his seat in heaven or taking a seat in hell, so to speak, just so other people will be saved. It, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, I don't know if you know the philosophy of the Shaolin monks, you know, the where, where Kung Fu comes from. You know, they're Buddhist, and the reason why they fight, and you know, most Buddhists are supposed to be passive, is they decided to defend the people that who could not defend themselves the monks knew perfectly well that they would that was a sin in buddhism and they were willing to come back for another couple of lifetimes in order to, to protect you know the the weak so to them it was kind of that sense of uh, ultimate ultimate deluxe sacrifice so maybe paul's doing something similar like that when i go through scripture, I look at the ideas in uh, in First Corinthians nine. It's funny how these both are in chapter nine of the books. Um, I don't know if that's significant. I'm not a numerologist, but whatever. Uh, so in uh, chapter nine of First Corinthians, Paul goes down this line of reasoning where he's like, you know, everything that I can do, I am free to do, and nothing in and of itself you know, makes me a slave to any particular thing. So I'm not slave to dietary restrictions. I'm not slave to, to anything really. Um, but all, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And he goes to this whole idea. Uh, and then he gets, and he's, he's set in the table to get to this point where he goes, I am free, but I make myself a slave to everyone around me. And you kind of quoted part of it in your essay where he's like, to a Greek, I became like a Greek to win a Greek. And to a Jew, I become like a Jew to win a Jew. And the point is, uh, he goes, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might win some. And that's just a weird statement. It's become part of like a, a core verse that I live my life by in Christianity in that our lives are not about ourselves. They are about the world around us, just as Christ was called to go and walk in our shoes and die the death that we can't die to pay the price that we can't pay that whole idea in Christianity. Uh, so the Christian is called to live a life that is selfless to the point where it's not just selfless in the concept of being selfless, but it's selfless in the practical application of living your life out for the benefit of other people. 
And so what that looks like for Paul practically is Mars Hill. And you again, you talk about this when he goes to the town square, so to speak, and he he engages with the philosophers on their terms um, and he talks their language. And when he gets an invitation to go up to uh, and kind of speak in the, the general assembly of philosophers, he he references the unknown God and he gives an entire sermon where he doesn't reference scripture at all. And in fact, he references the writers of the day, the philosophers of the Greek time and the Greek thinking. And that that is significant when Paul makes the argument that we ought to become like a Greek and then he actually displays that in Acts. What he's doing is he's setting the example for us. So you see that same thing in Christ when it comes to setting the example uh, in the way that he lived. He, He doesn't passively sort of go, well, I'm cool with all people and everyone's welcome. He goes out of his way to go and eat with tax collectors. You know, he, t- he tells them, hey, I'm going to eat at your house tonight. Like he he takes the initiative to go to people and meet them where they're at, so to speak. So when it comes to the ideas, uh, like in your essay, you were getting at the ultimate point uh, was to go, how do we live in the world and reach the world, but not be of the world? And I think that you see that in in Paul's example when he preaches at Mars Hill. I see his example where he is fully informed. Like he knows the discussion points inside and out. He knows their philosophers. Not only that, he knows the truth. He's found the nuggets of truth. He's not saying all your opinions and all your all your ideas are crap. He acknowledges that they're pursuers of truth. And he acknowledges through his quoting of their great philosophers that there is some amazing wisdom to be had there. He's just saying there's a deeper wisdom to be found beyond merely the pursuit of like they talk about truth, but it's so nebulous. There's nothing concrete about it. It ends up just kind of bouncing from subject to subject to subject and challenge to challenge to challenge. And he's saying objectively beyond all the subjective truth of the world. There is an objective truth that is the creator of all things. And and he literally has come and walked in the shoes of humanity and you can know him and his name is the is Jesus of Nazareth, right? That's an amazing example that Paul sets of what it looks like to be in the world, to go to the world and hang out with the philosophers, to speak their language, to be fully knowledgeable, and to preach to them not even using the Bible, just reasoning with them and reaching them. And it's, you know, he it says that he wins people over to his side and to his argument, and followers come out of that situation at Mars Hill. So I think for me to thump on people and go, well, the Bible says this and the Bible says that and the Bible says this to a world that doesn't care about the Bible is fruitless and stupid. And to go to the other end of the spectrum where we make the argument that we should simply give up all the tenets of, of the truth of Christianity and the foundational elements of what it means to be Christ to the world. And we can take on these absolutely disgusting arguments like you quoted the lady the pastor and i can't remember her name where she argues that you know because you can't live the abundant life right life to the full um she argues that if you can't live the abundant life then somehow there's this justification in ending life and i think this goes right back to the beginning of what we were talking about if you read freakonomics 
and you, you sit down, you listen to what these guys are talking about in Freakonomics. That is exactly the case in what actually has come out in society is that the quote-unquote least desirable elements or the poor or the downtrodden or the people that Jesus says for us to go to in love the lady is actually making the argument that if you can't live an abundant, fruitful life, that you are somehow subject to this decision for someone else to kill you because the alternative, not living the abundant life, is is so distasteful that it's literally to be avoided at all costs, even to not even take your first breath and have somebody cut you up with knives. Like that's literally the alternative to not living the quote unquote abundant life as she's defining it. Then who are the outcasts? If there's no more outcasts and no more marginalized and no more poor because you've killed them all in the womb, then who are we supposed to go to? Because you've literally just advocated for killing them all. So Jess Cass then... Uh, makes a similar sort of statement to like the policy in Iceland where they just automatically abort fetuses that are uh, that carry have Down syndrome. Right. And they they make this case last year that they they've completely, quote unquote, eradicated Down syndrome from Iceland. And like, well, no, that's like saying that Hitler just completely eradicated uh, the Jews from Germany. You know, like somehow that he sanitized Germany from from Jews. Like, no, you haven't eradicated. You've murdered an untold amount of babies that would have otherwise been. You just killed them before the fact is all you did. So it's the same argument that this lady's making, only she's attempting to make it biblically. Well, and this is where you get back to the idea of the philosophy on one end of it, like if you go back to Darwin, it really makes everything that they're talking about really makes sense from a Darwinian perspective and, and a survival, not only a survival of the fittest, but a recognition that humanity is capable of becoming better, quote unquote. The way that that has taken form is for them to say the things that are not desirable just need to be discarded. And I think that that's what you see right now. A friend of mine the other night, we were having a discussion on why conservatives are bothered by what we would call an elitist attitude from the progressives. And I was trying to describe it because he didn't quite understand because he's a little more progressively minded. But I was trying to tell him, like, since Darwin, um, there has been this mindset that humanity can become better by, in a sense, us grabbing the reins and making things better. And we want to have hope in that, right? We want to know that that's possible. But when when making humanity become better happens at the marginalization or an idealization of another person's life into a form that you just kind of characterize and then and then beat down as sort of a straw man. Um, and then you become dismissive of it because it's clearly inferior to yours, going back to the idea of the overman. So if Nietzsche talks about the idea of the overman, and you, by your own rationalization, right, because you're smart, you've come to the determination that you are in that class of people, then by definition, anything that you think or reason or rationalize is going to be superior to anybody else. 
And I think that mindset is what is caused our culture right now to be so fractionalized is that everyone sees themselves as an overman. Like I am more enlightened than you. I have come farther than you. I know more than you. And therefore my opinion as an overman is higher than your opinion. And that's why I am able to then dismiss anything that comes out of your damn mouth because you are an idiot and I'm superior. So then you can literally justify, uh, right? if, if you're going to weed the gene pool out, in other words, then anybody who is not an overman becomes subject to your determination that they should be weeded out. So then it's all about this elite class of people that just get to look at every other class of people and anything that they say or do or think that doesn't line up with your definition of the overman's ideas or intellectualism. And now you get to determine whether they live or die. That's really what's happened. We are rapidly approaching this place in our society at the moment where we have demonized on the right and the left. We have demonized the other to the point where every single one of us is the overman. We are looking at the other as a stupid, foolish idiot that needs to be eradicated out of the gene pool and thus purify the way going forward so that we don't have this quote unquote stupidity as part of our intellectual DNA. Well, that sounds a load like Hitler. I feel like the, if the true Christian way of looking at this is to see everyone as God's child. You know, we're, we're all created by Him, and we may be at different stages. We weren't created with equal abilities, but we were created equal in the sense that we you know, equally loved, equally have value. Even the person that makes all the wrong decisions, that's the thing I think we always need to caution ourselves to not just write off entire groups of people. And it's very difficult not to do. And I, I'm guilty of it daily. And if all we ever do is live in that place where we are just constantly and continually frustrated with everyone that is not us, I think that's, that becomes a dangerous place to be over time. Um, I, I'm not saying that we don't get frustrated. In some ways, we have to determine whether or not there is a quote, like quote unquote overman argument to be made. Is someone's opinion more right than another? Every Christian's going to say that. In a sense, you have to adopt that position in any religious context. You have to say, I believe this is right over and above all other things that are right. And so you, you might even as a Christian acknowledge that there is rightness in Buddhism or Taoism, or even the selflessness of being the Shaolin monk, like you were saying. But that still is subservient to the rightness that you believe in Christ Jesus, that there is something in the Savior of humanity that is more right and more true and more core than anything else. And so all of us actually do have to, to some degree every day, make decisions about the hierarchy of what is true and right and good. The problem with it is, is when the rightness of our decision trumps the empathy for the other's decision, when we begin to be so angry with them and, and, and actually become disgusted with the other, and, and we have a disdain for them, 
And, and if I can add, that can also work internally because, as Paul said, I know what the right thing to do is, but I can keep doing the other thing. I keep doing the wrong thing. And I, I feel like sometimes this is where some people come to the end of their rope. They think that they're unredeemable uh, and it may drive some to suicide, I think, where they think they see other people that do have it together somewhat, or maybe more intelligent, more talented. People are attracted to them. If you keep comparing yourself to others and see yourself as worthless and see these people as overmen, even though they may not think that, you know, you run the risk of exterminating yourself as well. Yeah, that's that's really good too. Yeah, you can't lose yourself in the elevation of other people. Maybe that, I don't think about that side of it because I'm not, you know, I typically function, I find myself in leadership all the time and sometimes it, it becomes like very frustrating to be in leadership um, because it, it always depends on you to initiate and to, and to do, but there is the other side. There's the follower and, and it's not, not in a bad way. There's followers in the sense that they look to the leaders to help guide. Uh, and if we make a leader out to be something that he's not, sometimes I get a little confused about, I don't even know how to talk about when we come to the Bible, we get into this idea of, of scripture and we get around quoting the Bible and, and, uh, and so reliant on it. We almost treat the Bible like it's God, like, like it's a, the fourth member of the Trinity or something. And while I appreciate that and I love God's word, there is this human element to the word that even Paul talks about within his own self and this flawedness and this cultural side to the Bible that it, it, the Bible just didn't drop out of the sky. It was written within a cultural context. And so we, as we approach these things and we assess progressivism in its current form and we assess conservatism in its current form um, and we assess the Bible from our current position, looking back into ancient times there is so much that we have to do to actively get out of our own head and put ourselves in the place of the other. If even if that's scripture, put ourselves in the place of ancient thinkers and think, why did they write this? What were they trying to say? And how does that apply to the now? And of course, the danger then with that is when you do that, you can marginalize things in scripture so far on the other side that you be, end up becoming just cast and you, you argue for abortion from scripture. Th there's this weird danger on both sides. So I, I think for the Christian, then deciding whether or not someone is, has a superior thought process or a superior theology or a way that I need to live my life by all these things need to be really well thought through and very careful in how we assess them and how much we follow any particular rabbit trail down the road to possibly our own demise or the demise of others. We just got to be careful what we do and say about others. We have the progressives on one end that are like I say, abandoning, uh, they're capitulating to the world, I guess, in hopes of reaching them. But on the other side, you have Christians that are, I, I don't want to demagogue them either, even though I've demagogued the progressives, I guess I should, but they just don't know what to do with the modern culture. I think some are still living in the past and they think like, well, if we just 
you know, we sit in our churches and praise God, eventually they'll come. Maybe they'll get so weary from all their sinning that they'll walk in the door. And of course, that's, I don't think it's going to happen. And they are in a quandary because they, just, they don't know how to adapt. But they, And they don't want to abandon scriptural Christianity or however you want to put it, traditional Christianity. They don't want to abandon their core beliefs to get people in the door. So in your opinion, how have you dealt with it personally? There's part of me that is a little bit, like I've told you in the past, and like, you know, in our conversations, they've been really helpful this year, in fact, um, for me, because I, I'm in a sort of a, uh, you might say a dark place or a, a very jaded place when it comes to the way that the church treats the world and, and and me, right? So as I've wrestled with my own Christian walk and asked really tough questions, um, I have experienced a, an enormous amount of rejection and condemnation from the church that is that you're describing from this the isolated church that is living in the church and sort of um, functions unto itself, uh, very separate from culture. So in my experience, the way that, that they, that, that group functions is they go to church on a Sunday. Uh, they really love it. And there's a lot to be loved about it, about the community, about the music, about the preaching, about the fellowship, all that is really good. Um, but what they do then is uh, you could almost like say sort of like a modern equivalency of being Amish, but without living out in, you know, in an Amish paradise to quote Weird Al Yankovic. So they're not living out on a farm. They're not living without electricity. They're not, you know, working with horse and plow, but they, they are in a sense living this isolated life in that everything that they do Every, every social interaction that they have, everything that they think about, learn about, uh, all that stuff is all within a very singular institution of Christianity and church. And so they're very separatist from the world. They look at the world and they see the Kim Kardashians of the world and they see the progression of TV and what's acceptable and you know, teenage pregnancy rates and mass shootings. And they see all these things and they go, we don't want any part of that. And so for them, they, they go, what that means is I'm going to disconnect fully because I don't even know how to begin to engage that discussion. Never mind, um, reach those people. So I'm just going to trust that God is going to do what God's going to do. And I'm going to keep living my life for him. Can you imagine if I said to you one day, hey, Travis, uh, grab a roll of ones, uh, let's go down to the local strip club, and while we're feeding dollar bills into the bikini lines or whatever, uh, let's witness to the girls. Of course, that seems kind of ridiculous. So how do we get down with the world without losing our own soul? This is the question for Jesus when he's with the woman at the well who's a known prostitute. He's with her alone during the middle of the day, you know, you're not with a Jewish man is not alone with a woman at any point unless they're married. And, 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 and never mind, uh, a, a Samaritan woman, never mind a Samaritan woman who's a known prostitute, you know, so his disciples, it makes sense when they come out and they freak out, like, what in the F are you doing? Like that is, this is so not appropriate, right? And yet through Jesus's willingness to go to that inappropriate place culturally, he is uh, able then to reach her 
and offer her living water. And what's the result? The entire town comes to salvation. So then how does that work without the sin, right? Jesus isn't in sin doing that. Yeah, it's not like Jesus took her up on her services and then during the pillow talk, told her about the path to salvation. It, that's pr- precisely. And some people push that too far, right? They sort of subjugate all sin to their own interpretation of it and what is what is okay and what is not. And they'll even take scripture and they'll look at scripture and, and sort of like Jess cast, they'll framework scripture however they need to framework it to do whatever they want to do. They won't say it that way. They'll say, no, like I fully embrace the Bible, I, I embrace what it's what it teaches. I just don't think that it teaches this, uh, and based on this or that, or there's a lot of justification. To be honest, uh, when it comes to what is sin, what is not, there's a lot of good places for that kind of discussion. We do need to help to define that. But uh, on the progressive side, there is a justification almost for anything you want to do, up to and including the eradication of children in the womb. Again, but we're on the flip side. We're talking about the conservatives and their fear of going to that end. And so they don't go at all. They don't want to be ones that justify sin. And so they're not Pharisees in the sense that like they're not actively creating laws like boundaries for boundaries. Like they're not trying to do that. They occupy so much of their times uh, that their, their life is consumed with sort of self-interested spiritual growth as a Christian. And they can point to all these times of growth and these these areas, what things that they've learned. And it's it, quite often what you find is if you talk to them long enough, it's all happened in a vacuum without having to actually be uh, involved in the world around them or engaged in a discussion and in an understanding of the current culture. The, the culture, as they see it, is actually a straw man version of the culture. They really don't know what people do or why they do what they do. They know, they know a caricature of it in their minds, and they don't want any part of that caricature, and so they just stay away. And I think that's just so opposite of what Scripture teaches us. Scripture says to go. Scripture says to be like Christ. To, to go means to be with the unlovely and the unlovable and the questionable and the prostitute and the sinner. It's to go to those places. And and again, so we come back, we go, Paul sets that example. And so what does that look like? I think for me, to, to if I could speak to that world and I was going to say, hey, I get you're uncomfortable, I get it. But until you understand the culture, until you're willing to understand why they do what they do and for the reasons they do what they do. You're never going to be able to reach them. And that's, I think, what you've relegated yourself to. You've just become okay with not reaching them. And I think that's unacceptable in the eyes of Christ. I don't think Jesus said that about us. And I, so I don't think it's an option for us to say that. One of the criticisms of the conservative approach to their faith is that they have been so focused on storing up treasures in heaven that they've neglected the treasures all around them in the here and now. So there's lots of need, lots of poor and hungry and hurting people, and yet that's not on their radar. So goes the the stereotype. And then on the flip side, the progressives are so concerned with the here and now and I guess you would call it outcome-based utopianism 
that they're willing to bring heaven on earth at any cost, and at least in the case of the Soviet Union, China, Cuba, North Korea, Vietnam, all these places, they've tried to do it by murdering millions of people to hammer out the rough edges, so to speak. Where do we find the middle ground between neglect and tyranny? That, that's why that, that quote stood out to me that, that sounded like Calvinism, because I just don't think that in all these things, if we just keep coming back to this idea, well, God's got it, you know, God's got my, God's got my back, you know, or whatever the case is, or God will, God will sort it all out. We know that in the end he will, but that's not what we mean when we say it. What we, what we mean when we say that is that uh, the Lord is, the Lord is, is got good things planned for me and he's going to bless me. Uh, and if every individual says that, then nothing, nothing bad would ever happen to anyone. And I, I think that, that that's where Calvinism for me, it really falls flat and it doesn't account for the the atrocities in this world. It doesn't account for these folks who are trying to bring about the utopia um, by murdering millions. Because I don't see God in that, right? I don't see a loving God in that. What some people would say, well, is like, no, what you see is the retributive God in that. And like, you know, which makes me just like, smack my forehead like oh my gosh like some people are just okay with god being a monster because they go well our assessment of him as a moral monster is based on our own human assessment right so we're, we we could say then that anything that god does no matter how much we might think that it's morally repugnant it doesn't matter because god by definition whatever he does is morally pure and perfect because he's a perfect God. So it's a really weird thing uh, when it comes to that fatalistic, Calvinistic, Augustinian mindset. And, and apparently early progressives somehow believe the same thing from that quote. You're saying that no matter what happens or what we do, it's all God anyway. And so you can justify anything in that in that manner. You can just say, well, it's it's all God, it's all been God, it's all going to be God, uh, and therefore, no matter what I do or don't do, it's all God, and it always has been. And so, I don't even know how you categorize sin in that paradigm. I mean, how do you say anything is intrinsically wrong if it's all God and it's always always been it's always been God? Um, that just seems so so strange. Final thoughts. Because I am an evangelist at heart, I see all things in scripture through the lens of evangelism. That's just been my particular lens that I look at, at the reality of our world through. So when I read the story of the Bible, all the way from the beginning to end, I see the evangelistic God. I see God coming to the world that he didn't need to come to. Even in the writing of scripture, Hebrew is not God's native language. Neither is Greek. When God speaks, anything that God says, whether in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or whatever, God speaks in the language of his children. By definition, it is the deity of the creator of the universe taking a knee and coming down to our level and speaking to us in terms that we can understand and comprehend. So 
I see an evangelistic God in the, in the existence of Scripture. I see the same evangelistic God in the flesh of the incarnate Jesus. This is not just an idea. This is the literal, this is the taking on a flesh of, uh, of the God of the universe. If that's the case, if, if all of the story of the Scripture is the, the coming uh, of God to humanity uh, and, and speaking to us where we're at, uh, and trying to teach us something about himself, then I think as people who claim to be his followers, right, to be Christian to mean means that we are a Christ follower, that that means that the, the life of Christ is something that we are to emulate. And to be an evangelist, to bring this message of hope to the world, is to, uh, to, to be hardwired to be predisposed to live self-sacrificially. So for the progressive, that is meant to go very, very far in trying to identify with the world around it and try to bring this message of good news through the works that we're called to carry out. And they're right in that. They're right in in understanding 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17, this idea that, um, that the, all the things we study in the Bible are um, for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness— so that uh, we are well equipped for every good work. And the way that those works are defined by the Bible and by Christ himself is, uh, and by Paul is to go to the, the widow. Like, uh, like James says, you know, um, that the tr- true religion, according to God, is to take care of the widow and the orphan and, and that sort of idea in the book of James. So the progressives are right in the sense that being a Christian necessitates action. We are called to go to the least of these and to, to be with them in their plight and in their struggle and advocate on their behalf and take care of them even to the detriment of our own lives. The flip side to that in the conclusion is they have lost themselves. Uh, many uh, have lost themselves in advocating for things that, that should not be advocated for. Um, so the identification with the culture and wanting to go reach them sometimes we lose our Christian identity in what it means to be Christ, and we advocate for sinful actions uh, because we want to love the world so much, and we empathize with them so much that we end up empathizing sin and brokenness, and we say it's okay for you to live in sin and brokenness. And I would argue that the reason God comes is to lift us out of our sin and brokenness. You know, like Psalm 40, like, you've lifted me out of the muck and mire, right? That's the call of the psalmist is to say, you know, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the depths, out of the miry clay, right? So I think that the job is to lift people up out of the miry clay. And I think sometimes progressives get lost in the clay. They get lost and they get covered in it themselves and they drown in the clay and, and they forget that there is a higher truth. There's a place to get showered off. And we're supposed to grab people by the hand. <laughs> we're supposed to grab them by the hand and, and help them out of the clay and, and give them a, a bath and help them to feel like uh, what it's like to be clean and warm and fully clothed and restored. And instead, they, they come to the conclusion that to love is to leave people in the clay. Somehow, it's better to get with them and sit with them in the clay than it is to help them out. And I think that's where they lose their way. It's it's not good to stay separated 
from them and never go and try to help them out. And that's where the conservatives are too distant. And it's not good to get lost in the clay. And that's where it's not good to be a progressive. And I think Christ is somewhere in the mid, in the middle. He's in the middle between the church and the world. He's in the middle between the sinner and the saint. And he's hated on both sides because of it. And I, so I think when you are ridiculed on both sides for being too progressive and you're ridiculed on the conservative side for being too conservative and you sort of live in this middle ground of what I would call Christ-like evangelism, I think that that's, that's really a good definition of what it means to be a Christian uh, and to know that you're in a good place. When you're hated by everybody, you're in a good place. <laughs> And at the same time, your behavior should be such that, like in Acts, like they they met together every day, they broke bread, they ate food, and they had favor with all the people, right? The world around them loved what they were doing. They loved the community. They loved what they were being as a uh, as a group of people that followed Jesus, and that was appealing. That reaches that group of people. But when you are being Jesus, you keep in mind that Jesus did not live his life in the synagogue. And he didn't go around just Bible thumping all the time. He taught through stories and he he taught people through like new forms of teaching. And so he knew the culture and he taught the culture from within the culture. He taught in parables and he taught, he taught in in new ways. Uh, And he said to be like him, to follow him was to, to not have a home, to not have, in other words, to not have this identity in a particular people group where he was fully at home at any given point. But it was to say that, you know, even foxes have holes and birds have, you know, nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Like if you want to follow me, you're going to be a fish out of water. You're not going to be at fully at home in the world. And so you're going to have to learn in the world. You're going to have to learn like Paul, how to speak Greek and to speak about philosophy when you're at Mars Hill. And you're also going to have to learn how to read the scrolls of Isaiah when you're in the synagogue. But more often than not, you're going to be in neither of those places. And that's where the work of the kingdom is primarily done. It's in that no man's land between the church and the world. It's being able to speak into both contexts to be hated uh, by people who are always sort of going to hate you and and that's okay. And, and, and yet in that you're going to find favor with some people uh, like the early church did. They, they found favor with all the people. It's because they were doing something fundamentally right in their loving of the world around them and they were reaching them. And it said that the Lord added the, to their number daily uh, th- those who were being saved in that context. And so I think that Uh, that both of those things are true. You want favor with the people, but recognize that as you go to the people God's called you to go to, you're going to piss other people off. And that's okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. You are welcome, sir. Again, you should give Mr. McCool's podcast, Table Gathering, a listen if you're interested in matters spiritual. Also, there's some more tethered episodes, including... In the corner, back by the woodpile, episodes 184 and 198, where there's another essay and discussion, that one regarding Friar Richard Rohr and some of his theology. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.
Oh, oh, oh.